Father, we thank you for Jesus and his, his great uh, sacrifice, his great ministry amongst us. We pray that you would encourage us and challenge us by his words this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's verse 37 from Matthew 9. Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This has been referred to as the other Lord's Prayer. So we know the first one, our Father in heaven, but Jesus also asks his disciples, and so us, to pray this one. Ask God to send out workers, and he calls God the Lord of the harvest, interesting way to describe him, to send out workers into the world, which he describes as the harvest field. So pray for kingdom workers, Jesus says. Christians, pray for kingdom workers, Jesus says. There is need for kingdom workers. This is, that is, he looks at the crowds and he sees that they're harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It's just as true today, isn't it? When, when you walk down the street for the cafes or when you're driving and you look in the cars next to you or, or when, and you just look at the crowd, what do you think? Do you think that everyone's got it together? Because I think that it's as true today that the crowds are shepherdless. So there is a need for workers. But there is also a massive opportunity for workers. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. There's no shortage of opportunities. And yet the workers are few. Is it a problem? Well, I think Jesus is putting it to us as an opportunity. We can trust the Lord of the harvest, but this is what he wants us to do. So what better way, what better thing to do than to pray the prayer that Jesus has given us for more kingdom workers and to pray over and over and over, Lord, please send our workers to Brighton, Bangladesh, wherever it is. You may think it's kind of odd, you know, it's, is it an unnecessary thing to pray that God would do the things that he's already intending to do, i.e. reap a glorious harvest one day. But I guess, you know, he's telling us to do it anyway. So maybe there's something that we need to learn from this. He's challenging us in this. And I think there's kind of two layers of the challenge. There's a surface layer challenge, and then I think there's a slightly deeper Challenge. The first challenge is to pray this prayer. I think the second, slightly deeper one, is to be the answer to the prayer. I've been praying this prayer for years. And what a prayer! Um, here I am, Lord, ready to do your will, so um, please send someone else. That's easy, isn't it? That's what you told me to pray, so I'm just doing what you said. Someone else, would you please go? It could be a cop-out prayer, couldn't it? It's no strings attached, no obligations, you know, just, Lord, I am burdened by the need and the opportunity. Would you please raise up the troops? And when you do, I will give deep thanks from the heart that you didn't call me. 
thank you God that other people went and I didn't have to go. And you know, we should actually, I think, be praying that God would send other people. I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying on a surface level. Because, you know, when you think about it, you think about your own life and circumstance and how hard it would be logistically to do this. You can't go to every country or every people group. Even we as a church, if we decided that everybody who was going to go to a different people group, we still wouldn't even scratch the surface if we spent 10 minutes in each people group. So, you know, we, we do need to pray that others would go. And when we do that, we also express to God our smallness and our dependence on the Lord of the harvest, that it is actually his harvest. And we don't need to stress about it, but we do need to get involved with it and participate in the way that he wants us. And so we can, we can express that dependence when we pray through the vast array of mission opportunities that exist in the world. And you know what? You can't even pray for the whole lot. It's just too many. But that shouldn't stop us from getting started. But also, let's be realistic, your life and family circumstances right now might mean that going to Afghanistan or Myanmar right now might not be the easiest or most best thing to do. And so we should pray that God would send someone else, because, well, if I can't go, God, would you send someone there? Is there someone whose life circumstance is at the right point? And then be thankful when he does. And in fact, CMS is planning to send workers to both those locations, and that's something that makes me very thankful. You see, in Afghanistan, there are small gatherings of Christians who meet together secretly because it's illegal. There are no churches. Christians have been chased out, along with foreign charities and development organisations and mission agencies. The Taliban is in charge. And in Myanmar, the army is in charge. They're no better. They just blew up the community a week or two ago. They jailed key members of the government. They're getting rich off the poverty of the nation. You might be aware there aren't churches in Myanmar, but most of them are amongst the minority people groups that the army is trying to subdue. You know, there are tens of millions of Burmese Buddhists and tens of millions of Afghan Muslims who not only don't know the Great Shepherd, but they have no way of finding out about him. Unless... God sends kingdom workers. So how good is it that God is answering this prayer? Aren't we glad? We can rejoice over the fact that there are workers going to these places, but we can also keep praying the prayer because those missionaries will only be a drop in the bucket and there are so many other places for which kingdom workers are greatly needed. The, the harvest is without a doubt plentiful. Perhaps you know, a million times more, you might feel it, even when Jesus was saying this, the population of the world, 8 billion people. But how do we become the answer to this prayer? I think we can pray. But how do we become the answer? Lord, send me. And do I have to be willing to go wherever he will send me? It's a good question tough question. I mean, he is the Lord, so he could command you to go somewhere. And what would you do if he did? But, <laughs> the 
Jesus is wonderful, he's very, very patient with us. And I think in this passage we see different motivations at work. To start with, it's Jesus' heart that is on display here, not his whip. He uses the whip in other contexts. But here, what you're seeing is the compassion for people, the lost, the shepherdless. He loves them and he sees that they have a great need. But not only is the passage showing us Christ's love, I think it's tapping into our loves as well. Because God knows that we are much better motivated by our loves than by some sort of law that is put down on our heads. And so this, this great call to prayer that we've seen there in Matthew 9, 37, 38, it comes at the point of climax in this passage. It's following a series, a little micro, a series of micro stories that lay out several reasons. They, they lay out a context for why we might pray that prayer and even be the answer to that prayer. And I think it'd be good for us to just spend a few minutes just skating over to some extent all we can really do that context. And just to ask the question, does this energize my heart? Does this actually make me love the work of the harvest? So there are five things about the kingdom that stir our hearts in this passage, I think. Maybe more stir you. But the kingdom is something new. It's something life-giving. It's something healing and cleansing. Kind of six things, isn't it? Something eye-opening. And something mouth-opening. We'll go through real quickly. Firstly, the kingdom is something new. The reading we had, it started with this Q&A, slightly tense Q&A, which turns into a discussion about old garments and old and new wine. Did you get that passage? Do you understand what that was about? See, what's happened is some of John the Baptist's disciples have come to Jesus with a complaint. How come we got a little piece of lettuce in our lunchboxes and your disciples got chocolate and chips for lunch. Now, my kids won't mind me telling you that each of them cares a great deal about what the other person gets in their lunch boxes. And here John's disciples are kind of doing the same thing. They're saying, hey, Jesus, we are fasting because we're holy and godly. But you don't make your disciples fast. It's, it's not fair. And Jesus says, well, you've misunderstood what's going on here. You know, if you have a big family party, like a wedding, and, you know, there's this wonderful, um, you know, lamb that's been roast, slow roasted all day, and, some, you know, someone's brought their wonderful potato bake, and there's just, there's food everywhere, and it's a great celebration of these two, two families that are coming together, and, and there's prawns, and there's prawns, and you're thinking, is this a time for fasting? Oh, yes, it is. It's not like a few kilos. No! Don't do that at the wedding. Get into it. Eat it. Enjoy it. Celebrate. Because that's what the wedding's for. It's not for your silly fast. Not that fast is silly. Certainly not. Anyway, let's not get into that. <laughs> the point is, when there is, some, when there is a time to fast, and Jesus says that time will come when I, when I go, there will be plenty of opportunity for asking, but it's not while I'm here. And it gives an illustration to try and drive the point home of what's going on here. But what's going on is there's an old and a new, and they're being confused. 
And I think we do it too. I think we sometimes just dwell in the old and forget that the new has come. He says if you get this unshrunk clock and you use that to patch an old garment that's torn, it'll tear. And then same with wineskins. He says if you've got aged wineskins and you put new wine into it and there's fermentation and there's, there's a chemical process, boom, 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 they're going to burst. And he's saying the kingdom of God is something new and different. And so don't think about it with old categories. I said, I've got to ask you, do you think of the kingdom of God as something new? Because it is. Even though it's 2,000 years since Christ inaugurated, it has so comprehensively changed the world. It's changed everything about our connection to God, about the opportunity for peace with him, and about what we can expect from life both here and eternally. And what's more, it's not even fully rolled out yet. Perhaps the technical term of saying is that is we haven't seen nothing yet. It's still, it's, it's, we are in the midst of, a, of an amazing new thing. So Christ, Christianity isn't a relic. Your friends and colleagues and people in the community may try to make you think that it is. But it's not. It's something new. It's bigger and better than a banquet, that's for sure. Secondly, we'll do it this more quickly. The kingdom is something life-giving. A little girl has died. And the mourners are there, the variety already they're carrying on. Jesus tells them to stop. In the old world, this little girl has no hope. But this is the new world. Where she does have hope. In the life-giving kingdom of Christ, not even death can hold this girl down. And the challenge to us is to have the same extraordinary faith in Jesus that the synagogue leader, the father, has. Can you imagine if your daughter had died and you're in the house and there she is on the bed? Can you you imagine leaving the house? Can you imagine just saying, no, no, I'm going off to find Jesus and I'm going to keep going until I find him. And you're running around, darting around the place, and you think, I'm not accepting that. I know Jesus is here somewhere. That's faith, isn't it? To go running out looking for someone who will raise his daughter from the dead. And then he comes down, and in front of everybody, he kneels in front of Jesus and he says, My daughter's died, but if you put your hand on her, she will live. Wow, what faith is that? And then that's exactly what happens. Why shouldn't we all have that faith? You know, Jesus raised people from the dead to wake us up to the reality that one day he will raise all who put our faith in him, raise us all from the dead, just like this. And of course, that girl will have died again a second time, perhaps as an old woman, we don't know. But I imagine, can you imagine the life she lived after this first miracle? You know, surely she would have then had the faith that she would see the greater miracle. I just love stories about Jesus raising people from the dead. They kind of smash our assumptions about life and death completely out of the ballpark. What have we got to be afraid of if our king raises the dead? 
can possibly hurt you? What can the world possibly take away from you? There's that famous quote from Jim Elliot about the sacrifices that we might make for the kingdom, even the, what we call the ultimate sacrifice. He is no fool who gives what he cannot do to gain what he cannot lose. This kingdom is something life-giving. Thirdly, the kingdom is something healing and cleansing. It's the little story sandwiched um, in between the story we just heard. While Jesus is on the way, this woman secretly sneaks up to him to touch his cloak. And she's calculated that that's all that will be needed. He's another person of faith, another person hungry to see Jesus at work. That's all it will take for her to be healed. Of course, it's not just healing of a 12-year-long bleeding. It's cleansing as well. The Jewish law that they were under would have called her unclean. And so that meant she was unfit for public life. She couldn't engage. She had to sort of live on the fringes. And by touching Jesus, surely she makes him unclean too. That's how it worked. But something tells her that with Jesus it's going to be different. Rather than him getting her uncleanness, something tells her that she is going to get his cleanness. And it's a mini illustration of what would happen at the cross sometime later, that Jesus would provide for the cleansing of all who are unclean and come to him that cleansing, making us fit for God's community together with him into eternity. Brothers and sisters, this is a great kingdom. Jesus cleanses us. He takes away our shame. Nothing can shame us if Jesus has honoured us by bringing us into his kingdom. Fourthly, the kingdom is something eye-opening. Have mercy on us, son of David, say two blind men who are following Jesus and then somehow, you know, he goes into a house and somehow they find him. I don't know if they're sort of, you know, listening and they think he's gone around a corner into this house, you know, I don't know. Somehow they find themselves in the house and Jesus asks them a very simple question, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say yes, and then he says, well, let's see. If you've got faith, you'll be healed. And sure enough, he touches their eyes and it is done according to their faith and they are healed. Their eyes are opened. They can see clearly. Fifthly, the, the kingdom is something mouth-opening. It's not just our eyes that get opened. This last little story of this section starts in verse 32. There's a man who's been mute and cannot speak because of a demon. We don't believe in demons in the West. But in the church, we do believe in demons because we believe in the spiritual world. We believe that there are enemies of God who are trying to pull apart the good things that God is doing. How awesome is it that this king, with power over death, uncleanness, blindness, also has the power over evil spirits in the invisible realm? The man regains his voice. And the crowd says these incredible words. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. It's verse 33. 
And you might be thinking, hang on, Mark, how do you make a bit, taking this, taking this a bit metaphorically, this eyes opening and mouth opening stuff? Am I pushing that metaphor too far? But it was actually very common in the prophets, for, and Jesus in his own words as well, for physical healing and spiritual healing to be linked together. Spiritual blindness and physical blindness, they're often just talked about in the same breath. Spiritual revitalization is exactly what Jesus is seeking from the people that they might turn and be forgiven. Every miracle that Jesus does has a kingdom purpose. It's not just about the poor person in front of him. It's about what it tells us all of us. Everything recorded about what Jesus did has kingdom purpose. Alright, so those are the five little stories that lead up to it. There is the, the little the sort of the sixth one, which is the not so nice one where the Pharisees, or I can't remember exactly who, but they, they say, you know, nah, and they're cynical, and they say, it's just by the, the devil's power that Jesus is doing this. So, you know, there's the warning not to take that cynical view. But, but when you think about the other five, does it stir your heart at all? You seen a few little nuts? Yeah, I've seen some big nuts. Does this stir your heart? Does it, do you want this new thing, this life-giving thing, this cleansing and healing, this eye-opening, this mouth-opening? Do you want that? Does, that? does that actually energize you? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why uh, this thing comes at the climax point. Jesus is saying, this is what is happening. This is, the, this is the great agenda, the kingdom. Do you want to be part of it? Well, we've got to pray, pray, pray. You can't make it yourself. That's where the context is for this prayer, to pray, sorry, this command, to pray. We crave these things, don't we? We crave new things. And I'm not just talking about, I need a new phone, I need a new car, or whatever it is, I need a new pair of shoes. I think we crave that there could be something bigger and better. We crave the life-giving things when somebody's life is in danger or in jeopardy or is, you know, fading away. I think this isn't right. Just imagine that someone could fix Ukraine. That would be so good. Someone that could restore the poor, revive the planet, restore every broken relationship. Well, that is exactly Christ's kingdom. That is why we are gathered here in this little group, is because Christ has come to do exactly these things. And yet he tells us the workers are few. There's a massive, massive harvest and few workers. And so I think when we're praying this prayer, there is that, that, that should be nibbling away in the back of our minds. What about me? Will I pray? Will I go? Will you pray? And will you go? Maybe you think, well, you know, I could go, but it kind of depends where you're talking. I mean, maybe if you send me down to the cafes of Brighton, 
or to the tourists of Glenelg, I'd be happy to go, I'd be more up for it than if you sent me to the bazaars of Kabul. And then sometimes it's hard enough to get down to the tourists of Glenelg, isn't it? Or maybe I could manage striking up a faith conversation with friends and family here in Adelaide, or just, just dropping Jesus' name in the conversation, or something that Jesus said or did in the conversation. You know, maybe I could do that, but Southeast Asia? Whoa! Africa? Are you afraid that if you actually do open your mind to the possibilities here, that God might send you somewhere really hard and really forgotten? I have a friend who, while she was studying at Theological College, she had a constant fear hanging over her head. She, um, she says, I, I used to, these aren't actually the words, but they're kind of what she's saying. I used to be afraid that Jesus might send me to a place that I couldn't possibly love. Until I worked out that he isn't nasty. He doesn't want to torture me. If he wants to send me somewhere, I believe he'll grow my love for that place and for its people so that I actually want to go there. And she ended up going to a different capital city in Australia, which turned out to be a good thing because there were significant health challenges ahead for her and God provided richly for her. But what about you? Are you prepared to pray that God might give you a particular love for a particular group of people, whether in Adelaide or Amsterdam or Brighton or Bangladesh? Jesus looks at the crowds and sees that they're harassed and helpless. So he urges them to pray this matter. So then we've got to come to that. He actually does tell us to pray, so we need to think about this before we finish. What about your prayers? There are lots of people in the world who are lost. 7,000 people groups, roughly, out of 17,000 are classified as unreached. That is, and they represent about 3.5 billion people, people who not only don't know Jesus, but they have no chance of hearing about Jesus unless God sends kingdom workers to them. So that's where the prayer fits in, right? It's three and a half billion who need workers. Now, there are many ways of praying around the world, naming people groups and getting to know the situations. We can start by signing up to pray for Kay. I don't know if you are signed up with her yet, but there are stacks and stacks of her cards on the back out of my little table. Just grab one and stick it on your fridge. Just remember to pray for her. Um, also, of course, if you are praying, you can actually sign up for the regular updates. It just makes it so much more informed, your prayers for her and the country. You can pray for all of the CMS missionaries. We have a prayer diary. I think I've brought about seven of them. They're sitting on the table out there, but you can always email the SANT office of CMS, and we can stick you on an annual subscription to just get those for free. They'll come to you and you'll... Just get the prayer diary of all of our, our missionaries. Um, you can also email us to be put on the regular monthly email, and that will give you the regular prayer points for um, for all 200 missionaries, including the ones from that branch. Uh, you could uh, download the Operation World app on your phone. I've got it on my phone. I don't get to it every day, but every day there is a new, a new country to pray for. There's a whole lot of information about you know, what's happening in that country, what the prayer needs are, uh, what the 
poverty questions are and what the whole range of things. Or you could also connect with the Joshua Tree resources. They have a feed. If you've got a prayer mate um, app on your phone, you can get the Joshua Tree feed into that. That will give you the unreached people group of the day. There are 7,000 of them, so I don't know how long it's going to take them to get through that. You can do the math, but you know, we've got to start somewhere. Pray for um, the places in the world where there's no, no local church, no translation of the Bible in their heart language. How are they even going to meet a Christian? Well, we can pray that they might meet a Christian. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. Will you pray this other Lord's prayer regularly? Will you pray it? Yeah. And whether you go next door or to the other side of the planet, will you be one of God's answers to the prayer? Let me read some prayer. Lord, we pray this prayer right now that you would send workers into your harvest field. We pray for the cafes of Brighton and the tourists of Glenelg, for the family and friends that we have connections with, and we pray that you would give us the opportunities, the words, the boldness, the willingness to make ourselves feel silly. But just Lord, help us to be uh, to be willingly sent. We also pray that you would send workers to the forgotten places of the world, to the unreached, the gospel poor parts of the world. We pray that you would make us uh, filled with compassion and just filled with joy and excitement at what Christ is offering, and, and the sense that it's not right that they don't know about it. Lord, would you please? Do this, send out the workers, and stir us to keep praying this prayer over and over.